My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. Welcome back to Oats for Breakfast. We're going to be continuing the discussion we were having last week about the way the COVID-19 crisis is playing out here in the Global South. And probably we'll make some comparative comments on what's also happening in the Global North. So we've been hearing theories being put forward about uh, why coronavirus has emerged. There's lots of conspiracy things. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I guess the conspiracies that we touched on a little bit last time, they've ranged from the virus being made in a lab in China to it being an American conspiracy. Yeah, and I think there's a conspiracy in China that is making the rounds of WeChat, which is a popular platform of communication in China. Um that says that an American soldier brought the virus from the United States to Wuhan and released it there. So, yeah, that kind of stuff is is continuing. And, I and mean, we've been hearing some of that here too, like the WhatsApp channels in Pakistan that our parents' networks have access to. Yeah, I mean, I am increasingly less fascinated and more frustrated <laughs> Because it, it initially, I mean, if people listen to our, we did an episode on the coronavirus back in February, and we had a discussion about the conspiracy theories that were beginning at that time to crop up. And, you know, I'd said, well, this is quite interesting. I mean, obviously, we and we tried to sort of offer responses to them to to challenge them. But, well, it's still interesting. But of course, it's, it's uh, quite irrational, ultimately. <laughs> Yeah, and it, there isn't really a way to get through to people. But I think, like, you know, partly what we realized in repeated attempts to get through to our parents to make them take this, you know, coronavirus more seriously is that you know, we really do have different ways of knowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, different ways of approaching information, knowledge gathering. And what I find interesting about it is that they will simultaneously, you know, they'll manage the information about there are this many cases and they'll look at what the WHO is saying. And then along with that, it'll be like, well, but what's this 5G rumor? So, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, The other thing that I think has been going around, and I don't know if this is this fits into the same kind of conspiracy theory type things but here in Pakistan there uh, there's a bit of a controversy over a religious cleric named Tariq Jamil who in a live telecast said that immodest women were the reason for the spread of the coronavirus I guess this kind of thing where religious conservatives take these kinds of positions does it fit into the same kind of uh you know 5g type conspiracy i feel like theory? we can probably group conspiracy theories or i mean it's not quite a conspiracy theory it's more like a it's an attempt at some sort of metaphysical paranormal kind of divine punishment mm-hmm. so it, there is something certainly is like sociological about it in the sense of like making a comment about gender in our society and that somehow being related to a pandemic. 
Whereas so many of the usual conspiracy theories that we've heard have something to do with China, have something to do with the US, have something to do with international relations. So it seems to be at a slightly different level. I think you're right. I think it is separate. And these are the kinds of things like I haven't really been following that closely what American pastors have been saying about this except for the that clip that's going around with uh, Kenneth Copeland where he's saying that you know he wants God to burn the virus. But anyway, these are the kind of things you hear American pastors go and say like whenever a tornado happens or some hurricane happens is because the homosexuals the homosexuals yeah so that is for the lack of a better word rational in the sense that if one believes in divine justice and one believes that you know there are repercussions for sinful behavior then why wouldn't it be the case that something like a a natural disaster or a spread of a virus why couldn't it be seen as a a punishment from the almighty i guess you know people have already been saying that this is one of the signs of the end of days and this is one of the signs of you know the judgment day oh have they been saying yeah. that yeah okay and so um like pestilence right like that's the, oh. usually one of the categories of it and uh, i guess both both christianity and islam and the religious texts and stories they have pretty much the same stories told slightly differently but they often involve divine punishment for acts of intransigence by human beings and sexual deviance seems to be a favorite among um, god's desired target punishment yeah and the guy tariq jamil he referenced uh, i guess what in the christian tradition is referred to as uh, sodom sodom and gomorrah when he was talking about these immodest women so yeah it's the same stories although as an aside you know it's interesting that in the bible i guess in the old testament that same story it has it's a lot more ambiguous about whether it's like definitely talking about homosexual acts as the particular thing that god was pissed off about hmm. whereas uh, by the time it gets to the quran it becomes a lot more explicit that that is what the problem was yeah but i mean it still leaves open room for interpretation right because tariq jamil didn't reference homosexuals when he was talking about the reason for the coronavirus he used that story to condemn immodest women yeah it is interesting i guess like in in the us new because of the the gains made by the gay rights movement and more recent gains made in favor of trans peoples there's been this like hysteria among religious clerics in the US to try and direct all explanatory force to that whereas in Pakistan in some ways the clerics are a little bit further behind um they're still sticking to blaming women Yeah and I guess cuz in North America you know comparatively speaking the rights of women are uh, more firmly established whereas here we've seen probably a regression uh, over the course of the last 30 40 years with the increasing islamization of of the society and and you know a particular kind of public islam that's come to the fore and with that any attempt by women to push to win rights is seen as uh 
It's very bad. Yeah, and of course the the irony is that this guy in particular, who's one of the heads of the Tablighi Jamaat, and the mass gathering of this particular Islamic group, led the way for coronavirus to initially spread in Pakistan. And since then, with the clerics insisting that mass will stay open, like those are clearly reasons for the spread. Exactly. I think the irony of Tariq Jamil, this guy who's a member of the Tablighi Jamaat, the Tablighi Jamaat is a, a missionary organization, and they had a, back in March, when there shouldn't have been any mass congregational gatherings, these guys held a, an event right here in Lahore, where we are, with you know tens of thousands of people, and became a major source of the spread for the virus, not only here in the country, but as a result of that congregational gathering, the virus spread to other countries because people had come from other countries. The first case, I think, in Gaza was as a result of that gathering. Um, and I guess, as you were saying, the clerics are insisting on keeping the mosques open. And the government's capitulation to the clerics is a little bit, I mean, if it wasn't so dangerous, it would be kind of hilarious to see because the government's trying to make it seem as if it actually had some negotiating chips, that it actually is in a position to enforce anything against the clerics. But the clerics had said that they would unilaterally go ahead with opening the mosque during Ramadan. So it's really that the government had to plead with them. And on top of basically conceding everything in terms of public health, they also have waived all um, utility bills, all public utility bills for mosques and religious schools. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about this, actually, I think there's some basis here for what's happening in Pakistan to be sort of looked at comparatively with what's happening in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Because it's interestingly enough, both of these countries have a religious right that is very embedded in civil society and autonomous from the state, but very important to legitimizing the state or, or certain actors within the state. And so in the U.S. too, many churches have been continuing to hold services the Florida governor, what's his name, Ron DeSantis, I think, he issued an executive order a couple weeks ago to put in place a lockdown, and it did not have anything to say about churches continuing to hold services. And, you know, in, in Florida, there are churches that have been continuing to hold services. And I think, you know, what is it, Mike Pence said, if there are going to be Christian gatherings that uh, people should make sure there's no more than 10 people who who congregate. And it's like, well, this is, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing that the the Pakistani government and mm -hmm. its officials are, are trying to insist on, but obviously can't enforce. Yeah, it is very interesting that in the, in the U.S., especially the Republicans, I guess to a lesser extent the Democrats as well, but the Republicans are, are deeply embedded in the evangelical Christian groups in the states that are very powerful and have been you know, very stubbornly undermining 
any public health measures. And so, you know, in Pakistan, we were joking that at least we have the excuse that we're a third world country, but uh, the US or American citizens have no such excuses, but they still continue to act very similarly. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting question. What is happening with the US? And I mean, to put it crudely, you know, you could say that countries in the global south, including countries like Pakistan, and again, I'm I'm being crude just for the sake of presentation here, but you could say we are culturally backward because we are economically backward, right? Many of the processes of modernity have not worked their way completely through, you know, lots of traditional institutions, including the, for instance, the power of the large landowners and, and the power of uh, the religious clerics, all of those things continue to remain. Uh, and I, again, I will insist that this is a very crude rendering because actually, I, I, in, if we actually want to understand this, the religious right and actually the religious clergy have, if anything, as a result of modernization, been able to make the kind of gains they've made and, and the continuing power that the landlord, the landed class holds is is not uh, you know in opposition to modernity actually the way that modernity has been processed in this part of the world has incorporated that class uh, into it so anyway with all of those caveats there um, let me just restate my <laughs> my very crude formulation here in Pakistan we are culturally backward because we are economically backward but what's the excuse that the Americans have? You know, they are an economically advanced country, in fact, the richest country uh, on the planet. And um, they are uh, they're not behaving much better than us. And in fact, uh, the protests that are happening now across various state capitals, I think I saw something this morning from Madison, Wisconsin, where it's like hundreds of people gathered mm. protesting the lockdown. I feel like here, if if the if the government did try to shut down the mosques, we probably would have protests. And I think it's probably that the government either knows that it has no power or very little power to shut down mosques, and therefore it has to try to negotiate a position where it seemingly has some power because mosques would stay open anyways, or that if it forced we tried to shut them down, it, there would be chaos, and it would be a lot harder for the government to contain. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure. I wonder that. It's possible. I mean, it's possible that there are, you know, there are obviously elements within the religious establishment that clearly don't want the mosques to close. And part of the reason, I think, not to once again be crude about it, uh, with the month of Ramadan being here and, you know, usually uh, mosques are more full than they are during the rest of the year. And there is more sort of charitable giving, more support for mosques, more mosque building. And so, you know, uh, there's a, the religious establishment has a, uh, yeah, has an economic incentive, especially during Ramadan to insist that mosques remain open. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if 
if the government had shown a different kind of leadership and not looked to the local religious leaders and just said, look, you know, everywhere else uh, in the Muslim world, mosques are shut down. Like, why do these local clerics want to keep them open? And if they had tried to keep them open, I mean, maybe they're, you know, that would have drawn a line in the sand and they could have been uh, reprimanded or, or dealt with legally. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think that as a counterfactual is interesting to consider like how the government could have managed it differently. Yeah, and you know, there are very real splits within this society, which I'd say an enlightened leadership could certainly exploit if it wanted to. You know, there's been a significant backlash from women's rights advocates who are saying that we have a crisis of domestic abuse in this country and, you know, of oppression of women more generally, and that comments that say that immodest women are responsible for the coronavirus uh, obviously don't help with that. And so it's not as if the religious clergy are all-powerful. And that's heartening to hear because as we're seeing seem to be seeing around the world, both in the global north, where I guess it's been better documented, and in the global south, uh, a rise of domestic violence coming with uh, the corona quarantines. Yeah, and, and I keep seeing stories about that on my social media feed. And some of the ones I've looked at, they connect it to the quarantine itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people just remaining indoors and spending more time together and that resulting to more conflict and domestic abuse. You know, there's possibly there's something to do with that. But I I suspect the other aspect of it, um, if it hasn't started to be felt yet, but, uh, you know, but certainly will, is the the economic deprivation Mm -hmm. that this is creating. Yeah, because I think a lot of a lot of what we're seeing in the news whether it's from China or Spain or Germany or Afghanistan or Turkey, um, the service providers are on the one hand not able to provide the services because of the lockdown measures and the women who are or you know, partners at home who are experiencing domestic violence aren't able to go reach those services. But yeah, as you're saying, I think one of the things that's often not mentioned is in a lot of the cases where men continue to be the primary breadwinners, the kinds of economic in- instability that's been brought about with the with the lockdowns, with the shutdowns, with the, the unemployment would exacerbate frustrations at home. And not to say that that inevitably would lead to domestic violence or for people to express themselves that way. But unfortunately, that is something that ends up happening. And so um, we are seeing domestic violence increase. And even I've been seeing people refer to as domestic terrorism. And I can understand that it's, you know, the more extreme terms are being used as a way to bring attention to a very pressing social issue. But as long as it's treated as, you know, women are the only ones who need help, then you don't get to the root of the problem. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, the domestic terrorism thing. I don't know if that helps to term things in that way. Yeah. 
Uh, I guess you can understand why. Yeah, as you said, it's a way to bring attention to the issue. But I, not everything is terrorism. Yeah. See, because and now we're talking about how maybe it's not the right term to use instead of <laughs> talking yeah. about the issue, the issue itself. Yeah, but I mean, like in a in a time like this, surely, like again, not to be crudely materialist, but that seems to be part of our brand. Maybe it's a running theme. Yeah. Um, but surely, you know, in the calls for taking domestic violence more seriously and especially doing quarantine, many of the articles I've read, the advocates that are featured in it are often asking for money for, uh, to be put into services, right? Whether it's services for hotlines, services for, um, domestic violence shelters. And those are, of course, necessary and, and horribly under, underfunded. But surely if it is recognized that one of the factors exacerbating domestic frustrations, which could boil into violence, would be some sort of, you know, financial relief for families and some other pitches for universal basic income that are being put forward or just like higher unemployment reliefs, more easily ones to access, food relief, uh, rent uh, and mortgage reliefs. I haven't seen those sort of calls be connected to domestic violence, but it seems like without those being part of the narrative, it makes it seem entirely as if it's just a, a gender thing. And there's some like men who are essentially abusers and they just need a quarantine to become more abusive. Yeah, uh, there's obviously a need to look at the issue from a broader, more systemic standpoint um the other thing about the economic pain that this is causing and will continue to cause and we did raise this last time as well but by now there's more examples uh and today is friday april 25th for anyone wondering when this is being recorded uh but yeah there's been um you know increasing cases of food protests and riots uh, across various countries in the global south. Here in Lahore, in the city of Lahore where we are, there's been some protests and, and there's, you know, various kinds of stories that keep coming in from around the world. Um, one of the ones I was reading was from Kenya, from the major slum in the capital city, uh, the Kibera slum, where uh, there had been some food distribution distribution taking place and because people had been going without food for quite a while uh, there was a stampede for people to, to you know to make sure they could actually get the limited amount of sp the food that was being distributed and I, as a result two people died i'd heard part of the reason for that was the poor execution of that distribution by the police that they'd sort of just like laid the food down and left it up to basically whoever was the fastest and strongest to go get it first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there was a, a, a riot in South Africa. Yeah, these kinds of things are increasingly taking place. And here where we are, we've seen, while we've been here, an increasing incidence of you know people coming from the nearby villages uh, who are knocking on doors and saying, look, I don't have any money to feed my kids. Like, if you have a bit of money, could you give me some? 
So that's our own just anecdotal evidence, but certainly seems like people are going hungry already. And I mean, to make matters worse, I think here it's common that every Ramadan food prices go up quite a bit. And so the price of lemons, for example, has doubled, literally doubled, um, basically overnight. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, the, yeah, food price inflation is gonna is obviously going to really hurt the poor. Though prior to Ramadan starting, food prices here locally had actually gone down. And I mean locally as in like the small vicinity uh, area of uh, the city that we are and the nearby villages. Um, and the reason why the prices had gone down was because of the contraction in, partly the contraction in the demand for food. People weren't able to purchase food because they were going without income. They, many of them were no longer uh, employed. And also because uh, it was hard, becoming harder because of the lockdown to transport the food to where demand was higher. So, like, I mean, people like us who, c- who can afford food had an easier time being able to afford it because so many other people were having to go without. And now you have the opposite issue where prices have increased massively and uh, poor people are, are going to have even less food. So another interesting area of consumption where prices have gone up as a result of the coronavirus is apparently um, the fentanyl supply in uh, North America because the key chemicals that go into making it the biggest supplier, interestingly, was uh, the city of Wuhan in China. And so when the outbreak first happened and the lockdown was put in place, the supply of those chemicals was severely affected. And so drug cartels in Latin America and Mexico in particular were affected. And so prices of fentanyl and methamphetamines had gone up. And, you know, you might, you might say that's a good thing that the, the supply is more restricted. But as uh, some public health workers in the U.S. are saying that they're actually seeing drug use increase because of sort of uncertainty, economic uncertainties uh, leading to all sorts of so mental health crises and addictions crises for people. And so at a time when incomes are more reduced and drug prices have increased, what could have been a way to reduce a horrible opioid crisis, uh, which I believe in 2018, fentanyl overdose had killed 31,000 people in the U.S. in one year, which is the most lethal that any drug has ever been documented in the U.S. Um, The other thing is that with the restricted supply of the chemicals to make up fentanyl and how that affects whether, whether the drug cartel is able to pay all of their people in Latin America. The LA Times had reported that uh, it's actually increased violence in Mexico. So there were a few thousand more homicides in March uh, during this period of corona lockdowns, more than in any month in nearly two years. We hate to leave you on such a 
sad note, but uh, that's, I guess, what the situation is. I mean, it is a, uh, it's a bad situation. So thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. If you want to support the podcast, remember that you can go to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and become a patron. Also remember to subscribe and also rate and review the podcast if you can. And actually another note just to end, we are going to be taking a break during the month of May. And that's because, as you'll know, if you listen to our last episode, we are going to be traveling back to Canada from where we are here in Pakistan. So given that there's going to be uh, a bit of turbulence in our regular schedule and hopefully not that much turbulence on the airplane that we're on. And then we have to, when we go to Canada, we'll have to be, make uh, specific provisions for while we're there and stay in lockdown, obviously for our complete quarantine for 14 days. Can't even walk outside the house. Anyway, so there's lots of things that are going to be in motion. So during that time, uh, we, we won't be able to continue publishing podcast content, but then we'll be back in June. And as far as our Patreon stuff is concerned, so what I'm going to do is I will turn off the billing through uh, Patreon so that those of our listeners who are patrons are not charged for the month of May because it, you know, doesn't really make sense if we're not really putting out content and we don't have that many costs for the month of May, then there's no reason to take people's money. That sounds good. All right. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Please stay safe. Bye.